the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed Balls. A steady as she goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Welcome to EMQ's Ex-Minister's Questions. This is our new episode dedicated to all of your excellent questions which you've been sending in and we've decided we need the space to answer properly. Yeah, that's right. Our New Year's resolution is to answer more of your questions and so EMQ's is the slot we're going to be doing that in. This is not the same as the regular podcast we'll have on Thursday. So if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to our regular podcast, that will be available in your feed. This is going to be coming every Monday. And it's a great opportunity for us to cover a whole range of topics that, you know, won't necessarily be the top issue of the week politically, but it's something that is important and people out there care about. But before we get to your questions about anything you like, we're going to start off by just saying thanks to people for the emails and messages you sent in about our Inside the Room special, Inside the Room, the Coalition Talks. We had Danny Alexander with us. It was brilliant to have him in the studio, our first ever studio guest. You can actually see the full version of that show on YouTube. So do please go and check that out. Yeah. And we asked at the end of Inside the Room, should there be other moments of recent political history we should do a deep dive into, something that we in some way were connected with? And Ed, we've had a very good suggestion from someone I think you'll want to hear from. Hi, Ed and George. It's Ed Ball in Leeds here. Really enjoyed the recent Inside the Room, looking into the coalition talks. A deep dive into the financial crisis would be great to hear in the future. All the best. Ed Ball. He's not the only Ed Ball in the world. You know, there's a very famous landscape architect from America, a very modernist architect who's also called Ed Ball. And I'm sure there's loads of others out there. A very famous landscape. I know. People people whose ancestors (laughs) were sensible enough to remove the S are all called Ed Ball, as opposed to me. Um, You should have changed your name like I did. (laughs) Yeah, how many names have you had? Just uh, just two. <laughs> yeah, well, according to President Obama, there's more than two. So anyway, good um, question from Ed. We're really pleased you like it. We've had people suggesting the Brexit referendum, Scottish referendum, first days of the Labour government. I think the financial crisis, it's a tough one because you'd have to decide. You couldn't do you know, the full like year and a half. You'd have to decide which particular yeah. episode is the right one. I See, what I liked was uh, when we did it was we did five days in May. You know, we we focused on the actual coalition negotiations rather than the run-up to the general election or what happened once the coalition became the government. And I think if we did, to answer Ed Ball's question... Um, saw what you did there. Yep, yeah, put an apostrophe in before the S. Thank so you. If, uh, if, we, if, we, if we... You know, I think, Ed, if we did it, I think we would want to focus, wouldn't we, on, like, the collapse of Lehman Brothers or the bailing out of Northern Rock or, you know, something that was very kind of time-constrained rather than over a year and a half. And, you know, again, with the Scottish referendum, there was a long build-up to it, and same with the Brexit referendum. I'd want to do maybe the weeks of the campaign itself. You know, we don't have to stick to days. But I really enjoyed it, and, you know, I'm a I studied history at college, and I think the combination of doing a bit of history with a bit of contemporary politics is what makes it work. And so, anyway, we are definitely going to do more of these episodes. And the idea of doing a, the financial crisis is a really good one. Thank you, I also, Ed. I also quite fancy doing the week up to Gordon Brown announcing 
that he wasn't going ahead with the general election in the autumn of 2007, during which you did your famous inheritance tax speech at the Conservative Party conference. That would be quite a dramatic seven days to do, lots of stories to tell. I think that was almost, maybe the coalition talks were, but the, I think that was like, for me personally, the kind of most dramatic seven days of my political life, quite probably. Anyway, thank you Wetting very much. the appetite. Anyway, on to our next question, which follows on from our Inside the Room special. Here's a voice note from Alex. Hi, guys. Really excellent podcast on the formation of the coalition. But one thing that wasn't mentioned was university tuition fees. Did the Liberal Democrats agree during the negotiations to ditch their policy? Now, see, I don't really remember. I've been um, trawling back through my memory. I don't remember the issue of tuition fees being part of the discussions we had from the Labour side with the Lib Dems in those Days. I need to go and check the Andrew Adonis book, but um, it wasn't something which was, for us, contentious between us and them. So I think we should just give a little bit of context here. So Labour had introduced tuition fees following something called the Deering Report early on in the new Labour government. Very, very controversial, wasn't it? And, you know, one of the kind of difficult moments for the Tony Blair government. And then in the run-up to the 2010 election, Peter Mandelson had come to me, I was the shadow chancellor, and said, look, we've got an idea of top-up fees, I way of increasing the money going into universities. But it's very controversial. Why don't we set up a report that straddles the election called the Brown Report, John Brown, British business leader. And um, it wasn't something he'd discussed with the cabinet, I don't think. Right. Well, there was a bit of... That was called a back channel. A bit of uh, freelancing by, I think you call him Bobby, don't you? Um, anyway, I mean to ask you about this by by Peter. Anyway, he so so we agreed. Very that, interesting. So we basically parked. What Peter would say, very interesting. Yeah, very, what a, what a very interesting, Edward. Anyway, um, for us, this was a way actually of getting off. I think we'd got ourselves into a mess in a previous election of saying we were going to, in some way, oppose tuition fees. So in the twenty ten election. Tuition fees has not really been an issue either for Labour or the Conservatives because we were both waiting for the outcome of the Brown report. But the Liberal Democrats have promised to abolish them. Right. Then you go, day after the general election, you're into the coalition talks. And, you know, it's interesting, the question from Alex here, because we didn't discuss it. And that's because it wasn't really discussed. And we came up with a formula in the coalition agreement. So it wasn't discussed in those days? It was discussed. I said it wasn't really. It was, was not it? a big issue at right. all. Exactly. It was dealt with quite quickly. And... What we agreed in the coalition agreement was that if it came to a vote on these top-up fees, which people were expecting the Brown report to recommend, then the Liberal Democrats would be able to abstain. And that was fine because on the arithmetic of the House of Commons, if the Liberal Democrats abstained but the Conservatives voted for something, the government would still win. Now, you've got to fast forward a few months. The Brown report happens Top-up fees are recommended, increasing the fees up to around £9,000. And I knew it was going to be a big problem for the Liberal Democrats. And so the Treasury had been beavering away for several months on whether we could have a graduate tax, which is something that people had suggested and still do as an alternative to tuition fees. And we just couldn't make it work. It was so hard to find a particular tax that only graduates paid and you know, how would you define a graduate and, you know, and then you'd have to sort of follow those graduates through their lives. It's much more, more complicated administratively to do. And there is an argument that the way tuition fees works now is in effect a graduate tax. Definitely. So we came back and said, look, we've really tried, but we can't find an alternative to just going ahead with a straightforward increase in tuition fees. And we had a key meeting with Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, David Cameron and me, 
And we said, look, we totally understand that for you, this is a kind of no-go area, and you said you were going to abolish them. And Clegg said, look, you know, the Liberal Democrats have got themselves into a mess on this policy, and, you know, we should not really have ever opposed tuition fees in the way that we did. And so we're going to support you in these top-up fees. And I remember saying to Clegg, he just... Vote for them. Yeah, I mean, I and vote for them rather than just abstain. And, I, you know, I, I, I very clearly recollect this, although Nick says this didn't happen. So, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying he's not telling the truth. But I, my strong memory is that I said to him at that point in this small meeting, just four of us, look, if I were the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Nick, you know, and I want this government to do well, and I want you to do well, I would not vote for these tuition fees increases. And he said, look, I'd thank you. Well, David Cameron looked at me saying like, George, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Why are you telling Nick Talk to vote for this thing? I was saying, we, you know, we, can, we can win without his support. We don't need his support. He just has to abstain. And he said, no, no, look, I'm going to vote for them. I think it's the right thing to do. And, you know, by the way, I'd strongly argue it's led to more money into universities. It's protected universities from other public expenditure cuts. It's meant we've got more students. It's actually increased the number of students going from poor areas. But it was catastrophic politically for the Liberal Democrats. It led to those big riots, people might remember, in Parliament Square. And it led to the kind of Nick Clegg apology, which got Match Lampoon later. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah. I'm so, so sorry. And, you know, funny, there was a lesson that the Tories learned for that, certainly David Cameron learned, which was he said, I'm never going to break a manifesto promise. So anything we'd sort of committed to and was now kind of inconvenient or our policy people said, look, come on, you know, I know you said it in the manifesto, but does it matter? He was like, look what happened to Nick Clegg. We are not breaking promises we made in the manifesto. The thing was, the promise to begin with was quite surprising. Yes, well, yeah, but I mean, Clegg, was right that it was a stupid promise. And by the way, you know, the Conservatives got into a mess, as I say, in the 2005 election saying they were going to reverse tuition fees. And Labour got into a mess in subsequent general elections after the coalition saying they were also going to get rid of tuition fees, even though they've been introduced by Tony Blair. And, you know, I, I do think they are, I know they remain kind of controversial, but they have been fundamental to the great success of British universities over the last 20 years. Anyway, we should move on. But that is a very, very good question from Alex. Moving on, though, George, but not fully moving on, because, you know, you've read out the um, message from Ed Ball. Well, there was also another one on Twitter from um, somebody called at Gibbecon. Not sure who this person is, but they posted a picture of a mug and the mug has a um, a heart on it, and at the centre of this um, heart is your picture, and underneath the words say "Gorgeous George." Who is this deluded individual? Paul Currency, George Osborne. It's not easy to rock this mug as a state school teacher in Sheffield, says Gibbercon. But as an economics teacher, I have to show both sides of the austerity argument. Sadly, it's got cracked. Any chance of a political currency replacement mug? We're going to have to put this mug on oh, Twitter. So it's an absolutely can, lovely mug. It's a, I can't it's a picture of me surrounded by a big heart. What I can't work out is whether, whether <laughs> she says she's a fan of yours or she just feels obliged to put both sides of the argument. Well, she's a very good teacher if she's putting both sides of the yeah, argument. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she thinks you're gorgeous. But she might. Yeah. I think we need to know. 
I mean, I, mean, maybe I think we're you... assuming as a woman. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. I mean, I think that was, I don't know why I assumed that. Maybe it was just because of the hearts. Anyway. Uh, anyway, look, we will... We um, don't mind either way. And uh, we, will we like the, the mug. mug. I, I think we'll swap the mug with her if she wants. We'll send a political currency mug. She can send us her chipped, um, you know, fractured, Gorgeous defaced, um, decaying... <laughs> No, it's gorgeous, got a big, it's a very nice gorgeous mug. George mug. And what we would like her to do is um, to send us a, a voice note question for our next week's episode of EMQs in which she clarifies, is she a fan or does she just feel obliged to put both sides of the argument? We want to know the answer to that. Anyway, we've got a definition question. That's next. We need to move on to do some questions on topics other than the Lib Dems and the 2010 Coalition talks. And we have one from Darren. Could you explain to listeners what the Barnett formula is and where it originates from? Please keep up the excellent work. Thank you very much, Darren. Oh, right. Take it away. Ed. Tell us about Joel Barnett. So Joel Barnett was the Chief Secretary to the Treasury in the Labour government when the Prime Minister was Jim Callaghan. And in the run-up to the 79 election, he came up with this formula to allocate spending to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland so that when um, spending was increased by the Treasury for England, people knew how much extra would go to the devolved countries in areas where they were running their own education system or their own health system. And it was a formula, a short-term fix. I think it was to hold together the rather um, fractured parliament of the time when there was no overall majority. And I've spoke to Joel Parnett since, who can't believe that this short-term fix he invented in 1978 is still in operation today. And it's a formula which basically takes as a given how much money is spent in Scotland, Wales, Ireland and England, and it only talks about the addition. And it says the additional money which goes to Scotland will be determined by the Scottish population relative to the English population. So if um, you're spending £100 more in England, but the population in Scotland is 9.7% of England's, that means that if England's getting 100 million, Scotland would get 9.7 million for spending on that public service. Because it's 9%. But the point is, it bakes in, because of how it all started, more spending per head for a person in Scotland, and indeed Wales and Northern Ireland, than for a person in England. So even if it's... Which I think was a mistake when it started, and it's kind of carried on ever since. Yeah, I mean, by the way, those... Uh, other nations argue that they are poorer than England or they're in some way more disadvantaged than England. Or have kind of greater geographical area in the case of Scotland. Yes, more is much more rural in Scotland. But it causes a lot of resentment in some parts of England. Or and there is a slow convergence because of the fact that they start with a higher stock of spending. If Scotland gets a share based upon its population relative to England, that means because the stock is bigger, the percentage rise is slightly smaller in Scotland than in England. So over time, you have this what's called the Barnet squeeze. Very, very slowly, Scottish spending has been coming down towards England's level. Wales as well, but very, very slow indeed. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting, you know, it, it, it periodically comes up with people saying it's very unfair on English voters. and But it, I think it's worth pointing out, this applies particularly to Scotland, that Scotland does make a big contribution to the UK economy overall because of the Scottish financial services industry in Edinburgh. And uh, although it's declining, the North Sea oil and gas industry, you know, there's a whole Scottish argument that in the 1980s, it was 
money from Scotland that was propping up England. So anyway, no party to, you know, Labour Conservative Coalition has touched the Barnet formula. Although we thought about it very, very hard. When we were in the Treasury in the early 2000s, the poor team who were doing kind of devolved countries spent hours, weeks, months looking hard at this because, you know... The Gordon, alter- Gordon couldn't have cut spending to Scotland. No, but we were looking to see whether or not you could have a more principled approach than this cobbled-together formula. And I think actually in 2009, a House of Lords Select Committee report said you should do this instead on a needs-based assessment. You should work out what are the needs of Scotland or Wales and allocate money on that on that basis. And we've um, spent months seeing, could you find a needs-based alternative, which would be fair to Scotland, Wales and England? And was there a process by which you could then go through to introduce it? And it was just so hard and messy to do. It's a bit like the council tax. The council tax was a cobbled together bodge after Margaret Thatcher stepped down in 1990. And it's still with us because nobody ever dares reform it or touch it. And the same thing is true with the Barnett formula. However messy and difficult it is, anybody who looks to try and find an alternative just decides Impossible. not worth the candle. But there has been big changes in the way that money is allocated to Scotland and raised in Scotland, which I was deeply involved in. And we've got a question on this because it's now been put into action. And the question comes from Saoirse. Hi, Ed and George. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the recent Scottish budget and the Deputy First Minister's choice to use their devolved tax power to generate additional funding. I really enjoyed your episode after Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement and hoped you might do a similar deep dive. Love the podcast. Thanks for such interesting content. Thanks, Tisha. I mean, this I was spent a lot of my time as Chancellor on this and it didn't actually get much coverage at the time. But... Um, after the Scottish independence referendum, as part of the promise made, which was a cross-party promise, and actually Gordon Brown was instrumental in making this promise before the date of the uh, referendum in Scotland, we promised that should we win, Scotland would have more power to decide its future inside the UK. And as a result, as Chancellor, I gave the Scottish government, you know, getting the House of Commons to agree, more powers to set its own taxes. And in the most recent Scottish budget, they've made some quite dramatic changes to income tax in Scotland. So if you're earning over £75,000 in Scotland, you now pay a 45% rate of income tax. In England, you'd be paying a 40% rate of income tax. So that is a big income tax increase for people on £75,000 or more. It's led to an argument in Scotland about are you going to drive away kind of middle-class professionals on that kind of salary? I think the Scottish government will point out that if you're on a low salary, you actually pay less income tax in Scotland if you're earning below around £28,000. So I would say this has delivered exactly what I hoped and I think other people hoped at the time, which is it's created a domestic argument, in the best sense of the word, inside Scotland about raising money and spending it. Because otherwise the politics is all about, please, London, give me more money, or we're being very unfairly treated. Once you get into... We want to spend more money on the health service or on benefits. That's what the Scottish government are spending it on at the moment. And we're prepared to raise taxes to do so. You then have a proper argument inside Holyrood and inside Scottish politics about how things are paid for. And I think that's good. And it actually moves Scotland away from this, you know, we're just being unfairly treated by England. There is a counter argument to that, which explains why, even though there has been a tax raising power in Scotland, it's barely been used since devolution began. And in Wales, 
the Welsh government has never wanted a tax-raising power. And it goes back to the conversation we just had about the Barnett formula. What the Barnett formula does is it gives per head more money to Wales and more money to Scotland than to England. And some people think in England that's really unfair. Conservatives particularly think that is unfair. There was always a worry that Boris Johnson would fight an election on, you know, let's end the Barnett formula and stop the unfairness to England of extra money for Scotland and Wales. The moment Scotland says we can afford to increase a tax more than the England tax levels to ask richer people in Scotland to pay more tax, well, then the question arises, well, if you can afford to do that, why are we in England also giving you extra money through the Barnett formula. Why don't you pay for it yourself? Why don't we actually equalise and then say, if you want to spend more, pay more taxes for it? And I think it's that fear which has always meant the Welsh have said, actually, we quite like the Barnett formula arrangement and we don't want tax-raising powers because we think it will open up this whole kind of England versus Scotland versus Wales argument, which might actually be undermining to the UK. Of course, the the SNP don't care about that because they want to undermine the UK. I think a Labour... Um, government in Scotland would be much more cautious about using the tax-raising power. Yeah, I mean, the Conservatives, by the way, became much bigger fans of the Barnett formula when suddenly Scotland started electing some Conservative MPs again, and uh, that whole argument disappeared. I would say, you know, there is an interesting kind of basic problem, which is unresolved, which is, does having the Scottish Parliament and very uh, more and more powers within the Scottish Parliament create a completely separate Scottish political culture? You know, when I started off as an MP... And as a shadow minister going to Edinburgh, you know, you used to, or Glasgow, you, you know, essentially the policies you were talking about were the policies that applied in Scotland as in England. Now it's, of course, a whole different set of policies, a different government, different uh, government ministers up there. And, you know, the more the tax system diverges, again, that's something else that kind of binds the UK together that is fragmenting. Now, I introduced this. And I would say, in counter to that argument, fundamentally, the Scottish Parliament, which was introduced by the Labour government, and these uh, tax-raising powers for the Scottish Parliament, which I introduced, have forestalled the independence argument. They've given Scotland the much greater autonomy that they wanted, the sense of separateness without actually breaking up the UK. And the independence argument has basically gone nowhere since they lost that Scottish independence referendum. Although there was a moment straight after, wasn't it, the um, Scottish vote, vote, when the next morning David Cameron in Downing Street put these issues on the table and started to talk about the Barnett formula and, um, you know, the fairness English of the votes. settlement. He talked about English, English votes did. for English laws. English votes for English laws, an English parliament, the Barnett formula. If they can raise their taxes, why are we paying for them? I mean, I think the Conservative Party has always been equivocal on this issue. Yeah, I think, as I say, it's actually things have improved because I was never a massive fan of those English votes for English laws ideas, which maybe we'll come back and explain at some point. You know, I think we're a unionist party, the Conservative Party, and it's helped enormously having some Conservative MPs from Scotland. Exactly. So, whereas whereas there, was, uh, um, there were definitely members of your party who wondered whether playing the English nationalist card would be um, a way to entrench a Conservative majority in England. I think Boris Johnson always had that tendency. Yes, but... Um, He's thanks. gone. Yeah, where is he? Uh, Now, time for a couple of quick questions. Here's a question from John. Hi, George and Ed. Now that we live in a digital age, it's increasingly easy for private investors to invest in the UK stock market. There are hardly any costs, but one that does remain is the stamp duty reserve tax. This doesn't exist in the US or Germany, 
Although it brings in four to five billion a year for the UK government, is it damaging the competitiveness of the London Stock Exchange? Well, it's a good question, John. So this is the tax you pay when you buy or sell shares in the UK. And it's not noticed in most transactions by people. But of course, if you're a professional investor, if you're one of these big funds, it might put you off investing in the UK. That's the argument. I, I would just sort of pick you up on your last point here, John. Although it brings in I mean, that's a <laughs> five billion pounds. <laughs> so unfortunately, I did look at this as chancellor. There's always been an argument. If you got rid of stamp duty on the chairs, there'll be a flood of money into the country in the London stock market. We could never really make that stack up. And the five billion quid that it brought in is pretty useful if you're a chancellor. The truth is that actually professional investors tend to get around this tax by having something called contract for differences or CFDs, which is a way of sort of shadowing the actual stock without owning it. And so because you don't actually own it, you don't pay the tax. So I'm afraid the people who really pay the tax are retail investors in their things like ISAs. But then we have all sorts of other tax breaks like ISAs. So, you know, I, I did look at it and I concluded we just couldn't afford it. And we looked at it um, when we were in the Treasury, drew exactly the same conclusion. In the end, £5 billion is a lot of money. And if you're going to give £5 billion back to these investors, you've got to find somebody else to pay the £5 billion who is not going to complain and not going to distort the economy and not going to undermine competitiveness. And I'm afraid um, the papers always used to say from Treasury officials, not much sign it would have much positive impact. And £5 billion is a lot of money. And um, that's why it's still there. Now, our final question comes from Preston. Hi, Ed and George. Love the podcast. Could you explain why special advisors such as Dominic Cummings can be so influential in politics and the government? Well, we've both been special advisors. We have. We have. Um, so I think special advisors in any government at any time, they play a really important role. There are certain things ministers need, which civil servants shouldn't do, which are about political speeches or political lines, political media, all that kind of stuff. The second thing is that at times of big transition in government, 1964, when the first advisers really came in with the Wilson government, Dicky Calder, Tommy Ballag, 1979, 1997, probably 2010 as well, when the government is changing and there is a new direction, then in those times, advisers also play a bit more of an intellectual policy role. And um, that was certainly something that I was involved in, in the Treasury in 1997. But then there's a third thing, which is separate from those two normal roles. Sometimes you have a leader who um, doesn't really know what he's for or she's for or doesn't like making decisions or doesn't really know how to govern. And there's a bit of a void. And if you have a void, that's when people can step in and take advantage. And I think Boris, you, are Johnson, you thinking of someone in Boris Johnson was a void. <laughs> right. And Dominic Cummings stepped in at his request to run his government for him. And everything we know now from all the inquiries in the last couple of years is that Cummings' special power didn't come from the fact that he was a normal special advisor, didn't come from the fact that it was a new direction politically and you needed that sort of policy intellectual role. It came from the fact that Boris Johnson couldn't run Downing Street and Dominic Cummings tried to run it instead. He, yes, although, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Boris Johnson chooses Dominic Cummings after he's already won the Tory leadership contest. So it's not that Cummings gets him to Downing Street. He chooses Cummings as his chief of staff just before he enters Downing Street. And I think if Boris was on the show now, he would say that was a catastrophic decision because ultimately it caused a lot of the 
kind of mess for the job. I mean, you could have said the mess was going to come anyway. With the Wasn't Johnson there room. always going to be a, know, but a Cummings per- figure? But Cummings particularly turned, of course, on Johnson towards the end. Anyway, it was all this uh, civil war, which I was, um, you know, observing with a smile from the sidelines. There was one thing I would say, though, there was a pretty interesting piece of news over Christmas that Rishi Sunak had considered hiring Dominic Cummings recently and had had secret meetings with him. And Having said publicly, he would never, ever come back. You know, it pains me to say this because I think the David Cameron line on Dominic Cummings is quite a good one, which is he's a career psychopath. But politically, Cummings, it turns out, kind of suggestion to Sunak, this was last year, it's probably too late to this kind of now, was do an enormous focus on the health service. If you want to turn your premiership around, make, you know, solving the problem of waiting lists and the like, the national mission, like you made, or like we made uh, the vaccine, the national mission during the uh, COVID epidemic. And then with your big tax manoeuvre, don't take down income tax by one pence or abolish uh, inheritance tax, as we were talking about in one of our previous podcasts. But instead, take the threshold at which you pay the 40% rate right up to £100,000. So in other words, quite quite the exact opposite of what they've actually just done in Scotland, uh, so that you are taking all of kind of middle-class England out of the 40p rate. And it's extremely expensive to do, you know, to which Dominic Cummings would say, well, someone else can sort out that problem. But it would be a kind of really bold move. And I have to say, it really pains me to say this, I looked at it and I thought, well, that's actually quite a good plan if you're 20 points behind the polls. But I think it was a plan more for the kind of early stages of the Sunak premiership. Or at least, you know, you could have done it last autumn. I think if you tried to do it now, it might look a bit desperate. But independent of whether it's the right or the wrong thing to do. I'm not sure about the tax thing. I think on the NHS, it's totally right. And I couldn't believe that Jeremy Hunt didn't do more for the National Health Service in the autumn statement, because I think they need to put the NHS front and centre. But when the advisor becomes the story, when they become you know bigger than the elected politicians, then they have no future in government. When your trip to Barnard Castle and the opticians becomes front page news. You definitely know your special advisor is uh, getting a bit big for his boots. When the advisor is doing a press conference in the Rose Garden in Downing Street, I mean, to the national media, I think you've lost control. As I said, the void, Hmm. the void ended up consuming the void filler. I think uh, Dominic called the Prime Minister the shopping trolley. An empty shopping trolley. (laughs) A void in a void. Anyway, that is, uh, that's all for today's episode. This is the very first episode of EMQs. Remember, we'll be back. On Have you noticed th- that George can't say, he doesn't want to say ex-minister's questions because it's just too painful. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I've long made my peace with that. Have you? Your ex-chancellor's questions, ECQs. Oh, <laughs> well, in that <laughs> anyway, case, you'll we'll have to do it on back. your own then, wouldn't you? We'll be back. you have on- to do it on your own. We'll be back on Thursday with the big political and economic stories of the week. See you then. Uh, And do keep sending in your questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Make sure you hit follow on your podcast app so you can get the latest episode directly into your podcast feed. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.